You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Liberty Family Church. For more information about our church, head to the website, libertyfamilychurch.net.au. Well, we are going to start our sermon series this morning, which is exciting. Our journey for 2022 called God's Story. So there you go. There it is up there. Thanks, Tim. So how about we just pray as we open God's Word together this morning and just, yeah, let's, let's really invite God to minister to our hearts as we open up and start at the very beginning at the book of Genesis. Let's pray. God, we are just in awe of you. You are truly an awesome God and that thread runs all the way through Scripture from the very first verses to the very last verses, God, we understand that you are not just an average God, you are not just a somewhat kind God, but you are a truly awesome and loving God to the greatest degree possible. And so even today, God, we just pray that as we open your word, as we, as we launch into this, this journey as a church community this year, we pray that you would just move on our hearts, God. Lord, would you just help us to, to put away any any sense of, of just almost like so familiar with some of these things that we miss the greater message and the wonder of your word, Lord. May, may that not be true for us this year, but may we approach your word with fresh eyes and open heart so that we can hear and receive exactly what you want us to hear and receive. So God, I can't do that with what I say, but you can do that by your Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, come, we pray. Move in power, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, unless you are my seven-year-old daughter, the perfect place to start when reading a book is where? At the beginning. You know, my daughter, I don't know if anyone else's kids do this, but they tend to flick and find something interesting, and then all of a sudden, oh, I like that picture. I'll start reading from there. And that's good. You know, sometimes that can be a good thing. But especially when it comes to God's Word, it's so important that we start at the beginning. And Genesis, the first book of the Bible, is the ideal place for us to start this exciting journey in God's Word. Why? Well, quite simply, Genesis provides the foundation. Genesis provides the foundation. In fact, the first three chapters of Genesis provide the foundation for God's bigger story. God's story, the movements of creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. And Genesis is the English translation of the Hebrew word, and I'll be careful when I say that, Bereshit, literally means in the beginning. And fittingly, Bereshit is the first word in the first book of the Bible. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning. Those three words together are the Hebrew word Bereshit. And in the early chapters of Genesis, we learn so much, don't we? God existed in the beginning. He just was. God existed. God was not created. He always was. He is eternal and always will be. God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit were together in perfect unison. 
existing eternally prior to anything else that we see and enjoy and marvel at even being in existence. God is awesome. You know, Genesis 1-2, I love the um, Trinitarian language even used that we can see in Genesis. It describes the Spirit of God, that being the Holy Spirit, hovering over the face of the waters along with God. And as John writes in the New Testament, in John 1-3, Jesus, the Word, or the Logos, was there at the beginning too. John 1, 1-3 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word, Jesus, was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Isn't that incredible? God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always existed together in perfect unity. And they were there at the very beginning before anything we see and enjoy was created. And the writer of Genesis describes our Trinitarian God as ultimately a remarkably skilled creator. Yeah? A remarkably skilled designer. God brings into existence light and skies and dry land, the earth, and seas and plants and trees. Just intricate creation after intricate creation. God creates the incredible and vast solar system, our sun, our moon, and our stars, the heavens that, as the psalmist reflects on in Psalm 19.1, declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the works of his hand. God creates creatures that live in the sea and fly in the skies and animals that live and dwell on the land. And what did God say when he, when he looked and beheld, beheld everything that he'd created? He saw that it was good, Genesis 1, 25. And this is the line that we see repeated over and over and over again in these first couple of chapters. And God saw that it was good. And everything was good. Everything was good. But God wasn't finished with his masterpiece. In fact, he still had the pinnacle of his creation to come. In Genesis 1, verses 26 through 27, we discover not what God's masterpiece is, but who God's masterpiece is. Here's what it says. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female. He created them. Man, the Hebrew word Adam or mankind. We, you and I, are the pinnacle of God's creation. We are the pinnacle of God's creation, created in his own image as male and female. Let that just sink into your hearts for a moment. You know, we, we know this. Many of us know this. Maybe if we're seeking today, we don't know this. But know this afresh, right at the outset of our journey this year, 
You are the pinnacle of God's creation. You are the pinnacle of God's creation. You are created in God's own image. And because of that, you are inherently valuable and precious and perfect in God's sight. Yeah? It's incredible. So here's what God's actually saying here. And this is something I think that we, especially in our, our you know, love of everything aesthetic, you know, looking out at the beautiful mountains and the valley in which we live, and you know, many people worship that, don't they? Let's be real. Many people who live in Hillsville worship the, our surrounds, worship the vineyards, worship our beautiful mountains and think that is everything, yeah? It's so wonderful. But here's what God says. Plant life and animal lives, they're truly amazing, but they ain't got nothing on you. That's what God's saying. The beautiful mountains and coastlines and beaches that we marvel at in our world are definitely remarkable. They are all awe-inspiring, but they ain't got nothing on you. God created Adam, mankind, each of us in his image. We bear the image, the very likeness of God. And he declares each and every one of us to be not only good, but very good, above and beyond every other created thing. Isn't that incredible? In God's eyes, you are the pinnacle of his creation. Just let that truth really hit your heart right now. You know, we need to feel this at a deep heart level. And, and this is a foundational reality and a, and a really important one for us to grasp in understanding, well, firstly, the character of God, what God is actually like, who he is, and ultimately the overarching message of the entire Bible. We mean that much to God. We are his greatest treasure. And God created mankind to live with him in intimate relationship, to experience his blessing, to experience a lived reality of shalom, peace with God, in a world of perfect order, a world that was perfectly good, a world where we could just enjoy a beautiful, ongoing, intimate, perfect, unbroken, always together relationship with our creator. The world was quite literally heaven on earth. That's what Eden was. That's what Eden in many ways symbolizes, heaven on earth, perfection. Mankind and God in perfect relationship. And here's the incredible thing too, working together, working together to care for and develop God's world, enjoying the ongoing blessing of being close and in right relationship with God. So that's what we see at the start. And then the story takes a shift and shifts movements from creation to the fall. So God, being such a good God, he gave us a mandate and he gave us a, the freedom to take a lead role in building his new world. That's how good he was, you know. He didn't just expect us to do certain things. He wanted us to play a key role, a role 
ruling alongside him, leading with him in making his world the kind reflect him, the kind of world that he ideally wants. But as Tim Mackey says, he also gave them a choice in how they would go about building that new world. Yeah? He wasn't prescriptive, you know, like it has to be this way. He, he invited them to join him in building this beautiful new world. And you see, up until that point in time, God was the one who defined what was good and what wasn't good. It was God, you know? And humankind were like, if that's good, then that's good. And hey, if we're very good, that is very good. I like the sound of that, you know? But because God was such a gracious and good God who doesn't want us to be robots, mindless robots who can't help but do whatever it is that he's programmed us to do and have no choice or freedom, and, and he chose, God chose, out of love, to give us free will. He gave us the opportunity to choose. Because here's the thing, sometimes people say, well, why did God give us the freedom to choose if he knew the man would ultimately, one way or another, fail and then we'd go down this road? Well, the reality is, you can't, worship isn't genuine if it's not freely given, is it? If we're created to worship God, God didn't want, you know, the um, Kim, Kim Jong-un, or whatever his name is, kind of worship, where people, people bow down before him because they know if they don't, they're going to get a bullet in their heads. You know what I'm saying? God wanted us to have the freedom to have hearts that longed to worship him freely with everything we've got, with passion, out of hearts that love him, not out of obligation, not because we're forced or not because we can't actually choose otherwise. So that's ultimately why, I think, I think that's probably a good summary of why God chose to give us free will, because he didn't want us to be robots He wanted us to freely choose with hearts of gratitude and love for him to actually do what we're created to do, and that is worship him, seeing our whole lives with every breath and offering, you know, like we sung about this morning. And God gave mankind, as Tim Mackey explains, a choice, boiling it down, between trusting God's definition of good and evil or seizing autonomy and defining good and evil for themselves. And in the early chapters of Genesis, we see this choice represented visually in uh, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You know, you can trust God and follow him, and what's that? That's keeping well clear of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, being obedience. Or we could seize autonomy and then define evil good and evil for ourselves. We could go our own way in rebellion against God and eat of the tree, being disobedience. And that was the choice that was before mankind. Trust God or trust in ourselves and go our own way. That was the choice. And we'll get, that to, we'll get to this a little bit later, but that is the choice that continues to be before every single one of us, every single moment of every day, ultimately. Do we trust what God says is good and right and beautiful? Or do we trust ourselves in defining what is good and right and beautiful? Yeah? You with me? Cool. In Genesis 3, mankind, they make their choice. They make their choice. 
And they choose to define good and evil for themselves. They choose to disobey God. And when we talk about disobey God, we're talking about rebellion, heart rebellion against God. They chose what we throw around this term so freely and yet so often don't really think about what it actually means. They chose the path of sin. They chose to sin. And as 1 John 3, 4 says in the New Testament, just define sin as lawlessness. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, for sin is lawlessness. So Adam and Eve chose, in a sense, to be a law unto themselves. They chose to define what was good, what was right. They chose to sin. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes we can think about sin in a range of different ways. And I know over the years, I've heard this line going around a whole lot. We kind of think of sin as being the bad things that we do and the good things that we do not do. Yeah? You heard people define sin in that way before? Here's the problem with that. Sin, at its core, is actually a heart issue. Yeah? Sin, at its core, is actually a heart issue where we choose to go our own way away from God. That's what sin is at its core. Tim Keller, pastor of the Redeemer Presbyterian Church in the US, he describes sin like this. He says, sin isn't only doing bad things, it's more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. It's the heart thing going on. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than on God. Whatever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. Sin is primarily idolatry. You know, idolatry is what actually occurred when Adam and Eve chose to sin. Because here's the remarkable thing. Adam and Eve were created in what? God's own image, God's own likeness. So they were already like God, weren't they? They were already essentially like God. They were image bearers created in God's own image. But here's the thing. As the serpent's deceptive, manipulative words came in and took root in their hearts, went beyond their heads and through their ears and into their hearts, they were actually enticed by Satan's offer to essentially become little gods themselves, you know? Like to function independently of God and they chose that path of sin. It was idolatry. And as Benjamin Glad, he's an associate professor of New Testament over in the States, he puts it this way. He says, essentially, they did this by determining to bring glory to themselves rather than God. In short... They worshipped themselves rather than God. That, at its core, is what sin is. Sin is idolatry. Sin is primarily about the worship of something else other than God. Yeah? You know, if we get caught up in these beautiful mountains, we're worshipping creation instead of God. It's a good thing, but if it's above God then it's actually we're worshipping an idol. If we are so fixated on how we look and 
and our image and our, all our worth and value is caught up in that, that potentially is actually an idol in our hearts and we are worshipping self in that way rather than worshipping our creator who says, I am who you are, who I say you are, oh, you know? So that's what sin at its core is. It's not the worship of God, but the worship of self. And this choice then and today has devastating consequences. In that moment of willful disobedience, the perfect relationship between man and God was broken. Death and darkness entered into God's perfect world. Because as if you read the account, and I encourage you to do this as we go on this journey this year, we're not going to be reading massive passages of scripture and that sort of thing and necessarily going in deep into every single story and every single nuance. Just encourage you, read it yourself as we're going along. We're Genesis 1 to 11 and then next week will be Genesis 12 to 50. So read, read all of Genesis in the next two weeks and get in God's word. But as we read in scripture, as soon as they ate the fruit, what happened? What, did, what does it say? It says they had their eyes opened. They had their eyes opened. And what was their response? As soon as their eyes were opened, they hid from God. They hid from God. They felt ashamed. They felt vulnerable. They felt naked before God for the very first time. They're experiencing, for the very first time, something they'd never had before, and that being separation from God. And you see, this is what sin actually does, isn't it? This is what sin does. When we choose to trust in ourselves, when we choose to worship something other than God, naturally we become separated from God. And little by little, as we become more separated from God... It's only natural that if sin is idolatry and it separates us from God, who alone is worthy of our undivided attention, uh, undivided worship and adoration, that that would have an impact on us and on him as well. Yeah? Now, here's the great news. This is the reality. This is the reality. Sin is something that plagues every single woman, man, and child, whoever has existed and ever will existed, and all of us too. Here's the good news. This was never how God intended for his world to go. This was never how he intended for his world to be. Mankind's choice to sin and disobey and, and not trust him naturally because God is a God of never-ending streams of mercy and unending love, because of this separation, it broke his heart. It broke God's heart. And yet, because of his beautiful heart, just before sending them out of the garden, lest they, as Genesis 3.22 puts it, reach out their hands and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever, God, in the form of poems, described to the snake and to the humans what was going to happen as a result of their actions. Very, very quickly, think about this, just... God actually, this was a form of grace right here. God cared about us so much that he couldn't bear to see Adam and Eve existing in a broken state for eternity. That was one of the motivations for keeping them from eating of that tree of life. Isn't that incredible? 
Even right back then, we see the grace of God in action. I can't bear to see them so broken and, and, and hurting and separated from me, and I don't want that to go on for eternity, so I'm going to keep them from being able to... I'm going to take them out of the garden so that won't even be a possibility. What an amazing God. So the snake is told that while it appears to have won the victory, it's actually destined for defeat. Right back here, Genesis 3.15, you can look it up. Right back here, you might think you've won the victory now, but you ultimately will be defeated. That's what God says. And who will the snake be defeated by? An offspring, a descendant of Eve. And God goes on to explain that while this will happen, while the snake will be defeated and killed, God says that it will come at a terrible cost. The descendant of Eve who will, will step on the snake and crush the snake, the heel of that descendant will be bruised, meaning bitten by the snake, and the man's strike will be fatal to the snake, but in return, the snake's strike to the man will also prove to be fatal. That's a pretty cryptic and interesting image, isn't it? And so then... God goes on and explains the consequences that are going to, that, that humans, mankind, will face due to their willful disobedience. He describes physical consequences whose childbirth women, we don't want to talk about that one, physical consequences, relational consequences, environmental consequences, toiling the earth, your work will be hard, all these consequences that will ultimately affect every aspect of their lives and this is heavy, but it's true, will end up one day in their physical death. Like, great news right there, isn't it? <laughs> all because, this, all of this, because of man's choice to disobey God, walk their own path, and stand in defiance against him. All because of their idolatry. Now, as I have said in introducing our, our, our year last week, we're, we're not going to be able to dig deep into every single, every single character, every single account. We're taking a 30,000-foot kind of view, like we're on the side of an aeroplane looking over God's beautiful story. So I encourage you, check out chapters uh, 1 to 11 of Genesis for yourself and, and read this in detail. But here's the thing. Here's the thing that we, we can sum up from all these chapters Adam and Eve's choice to sin didn't just have drastic consequences for them. It had drastic consequences for everyone who would descend from their family. Everyone. Every single descendant. If you were to draw out this kind of main theme from those first 11 chapters, or 3 to 11, you could describe it pretty well as being the moral failure of humankind. Mankind's continual rebellion against God. Just, just very quickly, think about this. Adam and Eve's children, Cain and Abel. What happens? Cain gets jealous of his brother, and so he doesn't just punch him or give him a backhand on the back of the head. He murders him. Like, that is extreme. What about Lamech? Lamech, he was a descendant from Cain, and he was known, this is not the kind of reputation you probably want, unless you're in like the Stone Age or something, I don't know, like way, way back in time. But he was known as such a violent and ungodly man that he actually boasted in being seen to be evil 
and he killed people. He followed Cain's example and was the first person in Scripture to have multiple wives as well. So he wasn't the best of characters. And then in Genesis 6, we read about the sons of man, the the Nephilim, who saw that the daughters of man were attractive and just went about grabbing any wife that they wanted for themselves and having their way with them, ultimately, like, I'm not going to beat around the bush. There's debate around who these men were, angelic beings or human men, but it doesn't really matter because that's not the point. The point is that they too, just like all their descendants prior, were sinful, wicked human beings as well. And God, here's what God saw as Genesis 6-5 tragically puts it. He saw that the wickedness of man was so great through in all the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart, talking about man, was only evil continually. Wow. Naturally, this grieved God's heart in Genesis 6.6. And when, when God saw all the evil that was plaguing the world and destroying his people, God resolved to just well, start afresh, wipe the slate clean, to destroy the earth and start again. But yet again, we see the wonderful grace of God who has created mankind in his own image. We're so precious to him. So despite mankind's sin, God chooses to keep a remnant, a remnant. And he doesn't start from scratch, but Noah, as Genesis describes, was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and he found favour in the eyes of the Lord, and, he, and God chose him along with the, the members of his immediate family, to serve as the remnant, to serve as a remnant of his people. That's, that's grace and mercy there, you know? Sometimes we read, we can read the Old Testament and people say, oh, it's full of all this sort of stuff. I, know, I like the God of the New Testament, but there's grace and mercy right there. Just It's through God's whole story. Anyway. And God basically says to this remnant, he says, hey, guys, let's learn from these guys that have gone before. If you, if you trust and obey me, I will establish with you a covenant, which simply means an agreement, with, and I will establish a family through whom God's blessings and provision are going to flow, not only to you, not only to all the people, you know, that will come, you know, Uh, They're in your immediate family, but to all nations, to the whole world. And here's the good thing. Noah did all as the Lord commanded him. He built an ark, brought all the animals and his family on board, and he waited out the flood for 40 days, and then God fulfilled his promise. Noah did his bit. God fulfilled his promise and made a covenant with Noah promising to never again curse the ground because of man or strike down every living creature. So things were looking up. Things were looking good until they weren't again. Noah, the, the new Adam, he chose to sin and he became, he became absolutely seriously tanked. Like he got well and truly sloshed in, after planting a vineyard And he was seen by his son laying uncovered in his tent, which was in the times. It's probably not appropriate in our times, but certainly wasn't appropriate in those times either. 
And scripture doesn't say explicitly what went on with his son or grandson because that word son could also refer to grandson or, or someone of that family as well. But considering Noah was upset enough to actually pronounce a curse on his grandson, Canaan, you could read about that in Genesis 9.25, many, many scholars suggest that Cain actually in some way participated, sorry, Canaan actually participated in some way in the degradation of his own grandfather. So, yeah, again, doesn't actually matter. The big point is that these people, despite their best efforts and whatever, are plagued by sin as a result of the sin being passed down from generation to generation, a common thing to all mankind. And here's the, here's the incredible imagery of this, if we think about this. What do we see as a result of the fall in the garden? Adam and Eve, naked and ashamed before God. And what do we see here with this new Adam, Noah? Naked and ashamed before God. Yet again, another Adam, naked and ashamed before his maker. And you see, this downward spiral of sin and human brokenness really comes to a head in Genesis chapter 11 in the form of the Tower of Babel. In short, mankind's path of, of evil, exploitation and sin led them to thinking pretty highly of themselves. They basically, idolatry, they started to worship self, thinking, I'm pretty good, look at us. We can build this massive big tower to the heavens and then everyone else will say, look at those people, how good are they? Worshipping self, looking for the affirmation and worship from others. The people in Babel, they wanted others to recognise how great they were and so they decided to build this tower that would reach right up to the heavens and, you know, historically in many ancient cultures that the elevation of something reaching up to the heavens was a sign that you were like a god, basically. Idolatry, just there. And I think Tim Mackey nails it when he says this about the symbolism. He says, it's an image of human rebellion and arrogance. It's the garden rebellion now writ large. So it's like the garden rebellion on a bigger scale. And theologians Arnold and Bayer describe it as epitomising the pride and rebellion of humankind. If you, if you need an image to describe the state of mankind's heart all the way back in that time, you just need to look at that tower. That sums it up. That's how far away from God mankind were. Yeah? So God watched on again, watched on, and saw how sin continued to have its, its really horrible effect on his beautiful creation. And destroying his creation ultimately and destroying the hearts of his people whom he loves and created in his image. And again, God saw the evil in their hearts and their desire to exalt themselves up above others. And so God deals with it by doing the exact opposite. He humbles them, absolutely. God confuses them. He sent, starts causing some to speak in different languages and they start getting upset with each other. Jesus' storybook Bible um, puts it like someone said 
something and then they said the other and then they whacked them on the nose and all this sort of stuff. I like how they put it. But basically, God caused them who thought they were so arrogant and, oh, look at how great we are, to, to really be humbled and brought low. And eventually, we read in Scripture that this, this tower just was abandoned. It, God scattered the people over, all, over the face of the earth and they left building the city. That's what Genesis 11, 9 says. And here's the thing too. Have you ever thought about what Babel, the word, actually means? Well... It sounds a lot like the Hebrew word for confused. Isn't that amazing? So pretty appropriate name for a place like that. Now, I have spent a lot of time taking us through from Genesis 1 all through 11 this morning. And I know we've covered an awful lot. And you might be thinking, well, why, why go through all that today? Why not like break that up into four or five or six different messages and we can kind of dig deep. Well, I wanted to take the time to actually share all that I have this morning so that we'd see that all of the events that I've just described, all the evil and the selfishness and the brokenness that came about as a result of mankind's choice to sin against God, to willfully disobey God, mankind's continual rebellion against God, I wanted to help us to understand that all of these things highlighted in story after story after story point to a bigger story, yeah? They point to a bigger story. And this is a story that, let's be real, this is a story that's common to all of us. This is a story that's common to all of us, a story that all of us experience, all of us contribute to and need saving from desperately need saving from. It's a story that, in many ways, is our story too. Because here's the thing, and if you're, if you're seeking spiritual truth today and you think this is a little bit heavy, just wait for the climax to this. This is, this is good news, and it doesn't sound it at first, but it's wonderful news. So here's the thing. We're all broken, sinful, failed human beings who are burdened under the weight of our sin. Super encouraging, Joel. But it's true. We are broken and burdened by the weight of our sin, every single one of us. Every single one of us. As Paul in Romans uh, 3.23 says, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not just some. Not just your neighbour who has parties too late at night and the music up too loud, but all of us, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And our sin, our sin, our rebellion against God, whilst not necessarily being exactly like the sin that I've described and we've very briefly looked at, permeating those first 11 chapters of, or the first, you know, 3 to 11 chapters of Genesis, our sin, too, is deeply offensive to God. Yeah? Just, just hear that this morning. Let's, let's be real. This is so important. The gospel is not the gospel without the, our realisation of our depravity and desperate need for a saviour. Yeah? Our sin is deeply offensive to God. We might not murder someone. If you've murdered someone, 
come and have a chat with me, we can sort it out. (laughs) But our actions or our words that come out of our mouth, all things that we are actually in control of, yeah, can often result in death coming about in relationships that we have with people who we care the most about. Proverbs 18, 21, for example. We might not take multiple wives or husbands for our own sexual gratification nowadays, but we're happy to check out another person who we find physically attractive. And in doing so, according to Jesus, we're actually committing adultery with them in our very hearts. That's sin. We might not have been the original humans in the garden all those years ago. They cop, they cop a lot, Adam and Eve. Like it's all their fault somehow. Hey, newsflash, if I was there, I would have done the same thing. And I think if you were there, you would have done exactly the same thing too. We might have not been those ones who chose to originally disobey God and commit idolatry, but let's be real. We regularly choose to worship other things other than God and commit idolatry. We, we elevate ourselves above God in so many different ways. Every time we seek our identity or our satisfaction or value ultimately in anything other than God. When we do that, we're committing adultery. That's sin before God. You know, you get what I'm saying. And this, this is the point that I'm bringing home for all of us today. We all regularly choose to sin. We all regularly choose to sin. We all regularly disobey God, walk our own way, and stand in defiance against him. And when we do, we are ultimately, or we're actually seeking to find our satisfaction, our purpose, and even our hope in things other than the one who is the only true source for all those things, God himself. Now, I mentioned before that when we sin, our sin separates us from God. Yeah? And not only does our sin cause us to to be separated spiritually and relationally, a perfect holy God can't possibly come close to anyone who's tainted by sin and therefore imperfect and not holy, you know? Like, it's just not possible. It's like to... um, Ends of the magnets, polar opposites, it's pushing away. It just can't come together. But not only does does our sin cause us to be separated spiritually and relationally, but our sin also causes us to feel the emotional weight of that separation. Would anyone agree with that? We were created by a relational God to enjoy relationship with him. And we... Just like Adam, Eve, Noah, all the others, all these other guys in these first chapters of Genesis, we too can feel very much exposed. Exposed and naked before God as we sit with the burdens and consequences that come about as a result of our sin, as a result of our choice to willfully disobey God. We can feel like Adam and Eve did, that we're completely lost. We're completely without hope, that we're completely broken, lost in our sin, 
sins and destined to be separated from God forever. Has anyone ever felt that before? You know, we all need to be saved from sin. And here's the thing, and this does not fly in a postmodern world where everything's about you and your truth and your reality and you're a hero and if you work hard enough, you can achieve it and if all this sort of stuff sounds good, it just doesn't ring true in reality. It doesn't work in, light, in this broken world. The reality is we can't save ourselves and all our efforts to do so are futile. They're futile. No matter how hard we try, we just can't make things right. We need a saviour, desperately. We need a saviour. Now, if you're seeking spiritual truth, that's the heavy part of it. Now, here is the wonderful news and the resolution to this problem. The great news is that the good news of the gospel shared by God, a promise set in motion all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Yeah? And it's this. Despite our sin and despite our unfaithfulness, God will be merciful and will remain faithful to his promise to bless mankind and will one day send a saviour, someone who will rescue us from our sins. God, right back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, declares that he, it's on him. It's not on you. It's on him. He says, I will send a descendant of Eve who is going to enter earth to deal with the snake. I'm going to do it. It's on me. It's not on you. I am going to send this descendant, and this descendant will step on the head of the snake and kill it defeating it and rendering it powerless once and for all. A descendant who will come from my own family, from God's own family, of which Abraham is the father. And more on Abraham next week. But here's the thing. For believers in Old Testament times, this was a promise to cling to and hold on to and and eagerly anticipate God to come through and fulfill it. But here's the incredible thing for us living in this time in history. This promise, the promise of a saviour, the promise of a descendant of Eve who would enter earth to deal with the snake can be embraced by us today. Right now, right now, today we can take hold of that promise and everything that's realised thus far about through that promise. This wonderful descendant of Eve has come and has defeated the snake, rendering it powerless, and has opened up the way for mankind's sin to be dealt with completely, in full. The way for mankind to once again, or sorry, the way for mankind to be redeemed and forgiven and set free from the power of sin. And who's this descendant of Eve? It's Jesus. This descendant, all the way back in Genesis 3.15, is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the better Adam. Yeah? Jesus Christ is the descendant of Eve that God spoke of all the way back 
straight after mankind had turned to their own way, abandoned him, and tried to define good and evil for themselves. Jesus Christ is the one who destroyed the power of sin and death through giving his own life as a payment for our sins, as the only perfect Adam, the only perfect Adam, man who was blameless and completely without sin. And Jesus died. I say that like it's a joyous thing, but it is. Because Jesus died and defeated sin and he was buried and he rose again to new life, destroying that power of sin and bondage and brokenness that plagued mankind up until that very point in history. And because Jesus rose again triumphantly to new life, he opened the way for us to rise again with him into new life, new creation, intimate, loving, trusting relationship with him, our creator God, once again. Friends, this is the wonder of the gospel. If you are with us today and you're seeking spiritual truth and you're like, man, what sets God, the Christian God, apart from other gods, this is it. The Christian God loves you so much that not only did he send someone else to deal with a problem, he actually came himself to earth to die in your place that you might be free. That is what sets the God of Christianity apart from any other God. And this is the wonder of the gospel. This is the wonderful big picture story that we see at work in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. The Bible is one big story that's all about Jesus. Friends, I believe today that God wants to set some of us free this morning. God wants to set some people free. Maybe, you know, maybe you're here today and for whatever reason, you know, you're, you're seeking truth, you're, you're questioning, you've, you've been listening today and maybe for the first time you've realised, well, if that's how you get right with God, if Jesus' relationship with Jesus is how you get right with God, maybe I'm actually not right with God right now. Maybe, maybe I'm a bit like those other guys and kind of walking my own path away from God. Maybe you think you've been building your life, your meaning, you've been seeking purpose and identity and all sorts of other things. And you've realised that while the pursuits that you've been pursuing, they promise freedom and they promise peace and joy in life, they actually don't really deliver those things from in reality. You see, true freedom, friends, true freedom, deep heart-level freedom is found only in relationship with Jesus. No other place. And so if that's you today, I just want to encourage you. Be encouraged today. Be encouraged today. Make today the day where you just reach out to God and say, I need Jesus. I need Jesus. It's as simple as that. God is so quick to forgive and he's merciful that if anyone humbles themselves and repents, that's another Christian term, but it simply means to, to turn. When we repent, we might be going this way, down our own path, but we repent and we turn and we get back on track with God. That's what repent means. Turn back to him. And we do this simply by, this is what the Bible says, 
We just need to place our trust in Jesus, our faith in Jesus, that he came, that he died, that he rose again, and because he did, we can trust in him and our sins can be forgiven and we can be come back into relationship like God always intended. So if that's you today, I just invite you, if you're here, to come forward in a moment and we're going to pray. And if you're listening online, I, I'm, just be with us in spirit as we're praying and be sure to reach out to us. If you do, make today the day where you choose to follow Jesus. We'd love to hear your story of how God has revealed himself to you. You know, if you're here today and for whatever reason, you're, you're just feeling so burdened. You know, you hear those words, naked and ashamed, and they hit home deep in your heart. You know, you go, man, that's me. That's me. I feel naked. I feel ashamed. I don't feel like I can even draw near to God right now. My sins are just too much. God doesn't want me. I'm too, I'm too broken. I can't be anywhere near God. If that's you today... God wants to free you spiritually and he wants to free you emotionally from that burden. So if that's you today, if you're feeling naked and ashamed, I invite you to come forward to be set free by the Lord. And if you're here today and, and you know, like, like all of us, our, our daily walk is not a daily walk of ease, it's a daily battle. We're in a spiritual battle each and every day. And if you're here and you're, you're really struggling in the daily life with that choice, the choice to follow God and obey or the choice to go our own way and disobey. Um, you know, we all face that choice multiple times every day and it's not always easy. Sometimes it's a real battle. Well, if that's where you're at today, I want to invite you to come forward too. We're just going to... Man, everyone should come forward because we all should have... We, we all fit into this in one way or another, don't we? You know, like really, God wants to release some people today. So let's, res let's receive this invitation from God and allow Holy Spirit to really move in our hearts and free us from these burdens that are not ours to carry, these burdens that we do not need to bear. And also, if, we're, if we don't know Jesus yet, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of coming to know him and coming into relationship that is unlike anything you will ever experience anywhere else. So maybe we could have the music team just playing a little bit while we, while we have some prayer ministry. So if you would, if you'd like to receive some prayer, I just invite you right now, come forward, and we are going to pray and invite Holy Spirit to really move in power. So if that's you, let's come forward right now.